Hi, I'm Meredith. And I'm Kristen. We'd like to welcome you to the writer's story. And it is May, and we are back on schedule after having a few months where we kind of pushed it to the last day of the month. <laughs> yeah, and we're right smack in the middle of this one. Yes. And in betwixt and between raindrops. Yes. It's been raining like deluge out here. It but feels like summer, too. It just got very hot and sticky, and then it rains, and then the sun comes out, and then, yeah. And uh, I'm got so many strawberries suddenly. It's very exciting. Oh, that is exciting. We had, let's see, our first one a couple days ago, and we each, my husband and I each had one more today, but they'll, they're oh, on their way. They're on their way. Yes, I can tell you. It was like I had the same, and then uh, yesterday I got to pick a big bowl. Wow. And a neighbor brought me over greens, and I was able to, to give her back some strawberries. So she thought that was oh. a very good trade. <laughs> it's an excellent trade. Yeah. And I love it. I love it. So I'm trying to, I'm actually working some of those kinds of things into my new story. You know, every life experience can be a part of our books. Yes. One way or another. There you go. Strawberries for greens. Strawberries for greens. You can have it. Green. You can have it. I that would also be, wouldn't that be a great title for a book? I think Strawberries for Greens is an excellent title. It also has the feel of a, I guess what you would call women's fiction, but just a feel good, kind of old timey story. Or a song. Or a song. Yeah. Yeah. Also a good idea. Yeah. Or the name for a band. Yes. For your ne your next band. Strawberries for greens. Yes, you, you can have any of those things. I, I gift it to you. <laughs> I, I won't fight you for that one. Um, so we are going to talk today about characters and not main characters, but the other characters. Yeah, yeah. Story. I've been thinking about a lot about that lately, about the role that some of our other, some of the other characters play in a story and the development of them. And I don't know how it is for you, but they um, don't emerge full, what do you call it, whole cloth, fully formed. But as the story goes on, take on uh, different nuances and qualities that um, I guess I, I feel serve the story. And then also just make them interesting people, independent of the rest of it. How is it for you? Well, I've had the experience before of a character that I intended to be minor, who kind of muscles their way in to a bigger role in a story. And that's always really interesting because um, I think then you can, you sort of, it's an audition. You're start, starting to write them and, and you see whether they grab you or not. And sometimes they're just, they have a huge personality and you realize, oh, I can't just have them drive the cab in this one scene they've got to come back again and um so that's all that can be that can be really fun uh i have a character right now that i kind of wrote in a certain way and i'm going back and thinking about him in a different way and trying to up his profile and i'm also trying to combine characters i don't know if you ever do that i sometimes realize okay i've just got too many things going on what if this guy who's kind of a love interest is also the PI 
you know, in the story. And that way there's fewer things and then you can deepen that relationship. And that's always, that's always like sort of a second draft thing, I think. Yeah. Sort of to sort out, you know, and I used to tell students, I was like, does there have to be five kids? (laughs) Could there be two? (laughs) You know, like that I think that sometimes we, um, think, oh, it's great, you have just more, more, more. And then it, then you realize, oh, now I have to keep track of all these people and I have to give them things to do. And why are they all there? Are they just standing around? Like, do you really need a crowd in the room every time? Or could you have fewer people? And if we don't see people enough and we don't hear their names, but the next time we hear them, we're like, who is that? You know, if they're not, yeah. if they don't make an impression on us, if it's just like yeah. one of a crowd or something like that. Um, you know, so I, I always say less is more, but I also, um, I think that as you go, you sometimes will create wonderful minor characters that, you know, have a, have a real purpose in the story, but also are very charming and fun to write. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder sometimes how much the influence of watching television, these series, these, um, these stories that unfold in, you know, chapters that can be many seasons of a television series long have by necessity, their characters are, are all interesting um, people who in some cases hold their own and become the main character in an episode here or there. They've, they've um, perform a really important role. And I wonder how much that sort of informs it. Cause I do think, about some of these characters, I begin to imagine the backstories they have, the things that they may be um, bringing to the scene that is never expressed or explained in that scene, but but could be fodder for a whole a spinoff of interesting narrative. Yeah, and I think there's all sorts of ways that you can um, sort of steer a reader to understand who's important and who they can readily forget when they move on so you know if there's a doorman in a scene and they have a certain role to do if if you're not going to bring them back again like probably don't give them a name you know don't Uh, describe them too much you know they're fitting a role they're like a you know they're like a setting that you go to one time. They're not something that anyone has to remember and come back to and say, oh, right, and that doorman, what was his name again? And Right, yeah, unless they do or say something that's really provocative. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's kind of your signaling if you want. I mean, the doorman could be a very main character and could be really, really important. And so then you need yeah. to signal to us that we have to remember them by yeah. naming them and describing them and making them unique. And what about, like, so you have all this experience with writing mystery, with writing thriller, the kind of edge of your seat sort of writing uh, question. There's a question hanging out for the reader, who done it, um, who's behind the kind of the igniting action. Um, Would you... Would you signal, like, say the doorman, to use stay with the doorman guy, would 
Um, do you think it's important that that doorman do something a little bit unusual when you first meet him? Or do you still, do you kind of want him to be a, a semi-forgettable character who then can be a surprise as the story unfolds? Um, it's always a strange line to walk. As I said, if you want the doorman to be important later, I think you have to play fair. That okay, doesn't so you mean give him a name and something. He yeah, does. that doesn't mean that you have to make the, your main character go. Hmm, could he be the killer or, you know, or anything <laughs> like that. <clears throat> but if you're gonna have them do something later, so for instance, if your doorman was in your mystery and is going to, maybe he finds out something about the killer and then um, tries to bribe them or something. That's a that's often uh, a technique, okay. right? And then and then gets murdered. Okay. And then gets murdered? Right, by the killer. Because they says the killer, I know who you are, and you're going to have to pay me off or whatever. Whatever, that's something that, you know, Agatha Christie's done many times. If that happens, you don't want people saying, who? (laughs) You want them to at least, you know, maybe they, maybe even make it so that people were a little suspicious of the doorman. Yeah. And then, oh, wait, he's murdered, so he couldn't possibly be the killer. You right. know, and so then it takes you on another twist. So you have to sort of set things up. One of the best advice I had read when I was writing my first book was the time-honored technique for mystery writers is if you're going to play fair with a with the reader, you should hide things in the open. So if so if um, if the the murder we- if I if the murder weapon's in the room and it's not actually a gun. And I have my character look around. I could say, you know, she noticed the, you know, the vase and the, you know, describe it and the this and the this. But you do it in like threes or fours and you put it in the middle. Mm, the big black okay. bird. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know. Now we know. Now you're giving us the secrets. I'm giving you the secrets. All the secrets. <laughs> for, you heard it here first. So I, I think that there's just, as I said, you know, sometimes you want to, you, you just don't want to get to the very end and have people go, who, who did it? Oh, that wasn't, yeah. I'm throwing the book across the room. That wasn't fair at all. They should say, oh my God, I should totally have seen that coming. Seen that coming. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That's the most satisfying and fun story to read. Well, we are having a very interesting writer on uh, today, um, Almakatsu. And she has written her first spy novel, so I'm going she's going to have oh, lots yeah. of things to talk about. Um, but she also writes historic fiction with supernatural and horror elements. And that's so how we fun. met her, right, when she came through yeah, her first that's book. that's right. With her early, I think the earliest book was when I first met her. Yeah, so her two recent books, Red Widow is her first spy novel, um, and I believe it's being made into a television show. Oh, it's good to know. And it's um and it and it's actually mirrors more of her experience. She has a 30-year career in intelligence. Um so she's got lots of stories to tell about that. Um her other books, um she's written several, but her latest one is called The Fervor and I think it just came out. Um and it's set in the Japanese internment camps during World War II. Um, and a mysterious disease begins to spread amongst mm. amongst the people. So, um, and she relocated from D.C. to the mountains of West Virginia, 
Um, but we got to see her the other day, or I got to see her the other day at the Festival of the Book, and it was really great to catch up with her, and I can't wait to chat with her. Let's give her a call. Well, hi, Alma. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Oh. We're so happy that you could do it. Yeah, and I'm glad I ran into you at Festival of the, of the Book. That's usually how I find a lot of my victims. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm going to call you, I'm going to email you, and I'm going to beg you to come on, because I haven't chatted with you for so long. And I was telling Kristen that I think we did a panel together, I think I was your moderator at Festival of the Book, a long time ago. And then you came back with the book to Writer House, and you were so sweet, and you invited me to come back, and we had a conversation. Rings a bell. Yeah, and it was... So I mean, it's a I lot of books ago. Remember, Alma, <laughs> look, check this out. Hello. You podcast listeners, Kristen is holding up a copy of The Taker. This yes. Is this your first book, Alma? That was my first book. I got it at a Festival of the Book event, and it may even have been the one Meredith um, moderated. Yeah. yeah. So, wow, that goes back to like 2010, 2011? Yep, 2011 was when it was published. Yeah, That's it's been quite wow. a ride. Quite a ride. Yeah. And, and um, we sort of did a little bit of your bio, but like, you know, it's such an interesting path that you took from <laughs> where you were working to writing supernatural historic fiction. So, yeah, it's a kind of a a meandering path that I don't recommend to other writers and we can get into that I mean you should of course always write the book you want to write and that the first book that I wrote was that but in hindsight my career could have been a little bit more directed (laughs) than it's turned out to be so did you want me to talk a little bit about that first book and well tell us if you would about how you came to be a writer in the first place maybe and yeah let's get into the other books as well sure well like most writers you know i was one of those kids that was a reader and so i wanted to be a writer but you know especially back in the pre-internet days how one became especially a novelist yeah you know was pretty pretty obscure like you know i didn't know any writers my family didn't know any writers so i went for the thing that i could see where you could make a living writing and that was as a reporter so i actually was a newspaper reporter early on even before i graduated and but people kept telling me you know you can't write a novel unless you've had life experiences and you're young and you know what do you know so i had the opportunity to um apply to the national security agency which the person who told my sister told me about it and she had all these crazy stories about it and it sounded like an experience so i thought i'll just apply just for the experience well silly me they offered me a job and so i thought well i'll just go there for a few years for the experience and i ended up in intelligence for almost 35 years i had a full career (laughs) in intelligence and stopped writing and everything so Uh, But I went back to writing fiction uh, when I turned 40 because I got very sick and, you know, that it's it's actually, I find out, a much more common story than I thought. But, you know, when you have a really bad ill brush with illness, a lot of times you think about what do I really want to do with my life? And I wanted to learn how to write a novel. So that's when I went back to writing fiction. And I 
it took me 10 years to get the taker to a place where it was actually saleable. Um, and I did, I worked on it every day for 10 years. <laughs> wow. So luckily it doesn't take me 10 years to write a book anymore. <laughs> and have you written, so the taker is the first of a series, right? It didn't start out that way. It actually was wow. a standalone. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. The type of book it is, um, you know, and if you think back 10, 12 years ago, what people were reading, you know, these kinds of paranormal romancy kind of big fantasy romance books were very popular and they loved for them to be trilogies. So they kind of talked me into making it a trilogy. But it didn't start out even in your conception of it with the others in mind. Right. It was a standalone. And how, the story it came from was a short story I had written in my 20s, actually, that I never could stop thinking about. And wow. so when I got very sick at 40 and I just needed something to take my mind off of the situation I was in, I thought of that story and I thought, I'm going to see where the story goes. And that's what happened. So, oh, wow. so when you got really sick, did it mean that you had to stop working or not? So I got... <clears throat> uh, constant vertigo and a, just a incredibly bad headache so bad that it like obliterated my vision and gave me tinnitus and wow. and yeah so um I worked but uh you know kind of in fits and starts because literally I just had continuous vertigo for almost a year and I went through a bunch of doctors and ended up um, seeing a specialist for a long time six years Wow. So, yeah, and so at the beginning, it wasn't, they had no idea what it was, and they weren't sure that I wouldn't have to go on disability. Uh -huh. So it was a very, very frightening time, and I found, I, I couldn't really watch TV or be on a computer or anything. So I started writing longhand, working oh. on writing, just to take my mind off of things. And boy, did I suck, because I had not written fiction in 15 years, and it was terrible. Well, you were just rusty. And I think that that's, you know, you have to give yourself a little, you know, pass on it. Because I think, you know, when I, I write different things and when um, I haven't written a screenplay in a while and I go back to writing a screenplay, I'm just, I'm just like, it's like creaky at it. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to make it too much like a novel and you have to remember that, you oh, know, you're writing a screenplay, you know, and that kind of stuff. It's sort of like, you definitely have to expect that. I mean, even when I'm starting a new book and I'm writing, you know, a lot, um, but the, the first six, not six months, the first three or four months are, is really creaky on a new book. It takes a while to sort of, you know, for it to really start being, um, to hit your stride on it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel yeah. like I lose, um, I'm working on a first draft new novel now and um if I'm away from it even for five or worse seven days I am super creaky because I can't remember exactly like have I already revealed this piece or what is the momentum here I find I have to give myself and I've just had this experience today today coming back to writing after about five days of not and I just have to tell myself just take it easy. I mean, stay with it. Yeah. But it's going to be, you're not going to be feeling great about this today. Tomorrow Absolutely. Will be better. <laughs> I think a lot of it is sort of muscle memory. You know, you just have to, when you get away from riding, it's just like running. The first couple times you go back to running, it's going to hurt like heck and you just got to push through it. And then 
like you said, after a couple of days, I find I'm back in the swing of it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm just so and I'm so impressed that under those circumstances, you could write at all. That you would like turn to that. I mean, I guess writing by I can kind of imagine writing by hand. That might be somewhat of a respite from the vertigo, the tinnitus, the headache. But yowza. Yeah. Well, it did. You know, it just took my mind. I just went to this completely different place, which is the one thing I don't know about you guys, but you know that I to this day I still really enjoy about writing because it just takes you away from yeah you know what your life is. Not that my life is bad now. I'm retired from work, so it's much better. What <laughs> <laughs> I also think, like, um, if you can tap into what uh, and with your writing what gives you so much pleasure as a reader. And I, you know, I think most excellent writers are huge readers. And, and that's what I remember, like my summers as a kid, just, you know, getting in a hammock and having like a snack and a book you've never read, but maybe by an author you really love. And that was just like the perfect afternoon. And I yeah. think if you can find a way with your writing to be like, oh, I'm going on that journey and I'm, I'm writing that. Yeah. You know, I think uh, part of me, though, is so influenced by my day job for so long that um, for me, I just like accomplishing things, right? Like the meeting, the challenge of what I need to do, right, to make this passage work or something like that. Unfortunately, I'm, maybe I'm, I've always been just a joyless grind. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Well, after doing these 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 big juicy novels you decided to return to something closer to your experience what was that like to write red widow oh so red widow was very interesting um uh you know when i was those 10 years that i was working on the taker i did try to write a spy novel you know it was my job <laughs> But I wasn't very good at it because, uh, you know, I really felt the pressure to write a book that my colleagues would respect. Mm. And I think anybody right, who writes about their career probably feels the same way. But the problem is, is that the day-to-day of the intelligence business is nothing like books and movies and TV and what readers expect from the book. So I just couldn't write a book that that made agents happy. So I had put that aside and I figured, well, that's just not going to happen. And then I think it was right around the time I was retiring, I had a meeting with my publisher at Putnam and she had mentioned, she kind of encouraged me to give it a try. And so I knew right away the, the story I'd write about because it was a real story that had happened at work, of course, I couldn't write the real story, but I would use it as the model. And then, um, and also, I also knew that I really wanted to write a book that was about women in intelligence with women as the central figures and not just the handmaidens, you know, mm-hmm. the help needs um, and, and to show what it's like more. And also to kind of show the real life demands that the job has on you. And, you know, it resonates with people around here because there's so many people who've been in the intelligence business or work for defense contractors or in, and are in a similar situation, you know, where you have to keep the security clearance and all the demands that come with that. So, you know, I really wanted to meet this challenge with, of a book that's fairly realistic, but is still 
interesting and fast paced and, and twisty enough to make readers happy. So that was Red Widow. And um, mm -hmm. I'm just so thrilled with, with how the book's been received. And it's been out a little over a year now, I guess. We're doing a TV show with Fox. That's been going on for Thank you. Yeah, that's really been an eye-opening experience, uh, uh, my introduction to the TV business. And it was nominated for Thriller of the Year, which will, that Thriller Fest um, banquet is in a couple weeks, and we'll find out. I wow. doubt I'm going to win because I'm up against, like, some of the biggest books of the last year. So. Well, congratulations. congratulations. That's super so, exciting. Yeah, it's very lucky because it's tough. I mean, it's not a field that women read traditionally. And, um, you know, it's really dominated by male writers and male protagonists. So it's it's that it's made it this far really surprised me, actually. Oh, really? Do I mean, I feel like there's been a, a rise in thrillers for women, but those are really more domestic thrillers, I guess. Is what you're... Yeah, that's the thing. And I don't know if you guys want to talk about it. It's certainly been on my mind a lot, just how gender defined a lot of books are. And it's ah. it's partly because the, the business dictates it, right? If you want to sell books, it's really hard to buck, you know, I don't want to say stereotypes, but you know, like expectations. Yeah. And yeah, right now there's just so many you know, psychological suspense, domestic thrillers, that kind of thing. I mean, it's been easily 10 years now, right? How long can that trend continue? What aren't women getting tired of reading those books about their lying best friend who had amnesia and maybe killed her twin? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, it's sort of interesting because then there's sort of the thing of like, I, I do wonder sometimes I, I get into this sort of this weird spiral with with books like thinking well is it what they think we want to read and then that's what's available so that's what we read but if we had other options maybe we'd read that I don't know like I don't believe that they know, know because those aren't getting out there I don't believe that they know everything about what everyone wants to read because you know but I mean I, I don't know I mean I also think Books are gendered just like toys are gendered. I mean, if you've ever gone to like Toys R Us it, to get somebody a present, you're just like, it's the pink aisle and then it's the camo <laughs> aisle, you know, and you're just like, where's the Legos, you know, like that anyone could have or I don't right. know. Right. And you're right. Those books are out there. But the problem is it's so hard. You know, there's writing and there's and then there's publishing and the business of it. And writing a great book is hard enough. But but I think it's really hard to resist the temptation to try to write for the business. Sure. And, and I'll use the book that I, that I have that just came out as an example. The Fervor is my third historical horror novel. And it's been getting incredible reviews. I mean, it got three-starred in, industry reviews. It's just readers, what, what readers have said about it have, have just, you know, it's everything I could ever hope for. I'll be candid. It's not selling well. Oh. Yeah. Yep. Now it's just barely out though, right? It did. It did. It's the lowest selling book of mine off the blocks. Wow. Really? Yeah. And I think it's because it's um you know, it's it's minority focused. It's you know, there's four uh, point of view characters in it. 
but the main character is Asian. It's about the Japanese internment. You know, all those books have are kind of labeled horror, even though they're very cross-genre books. I would say the horror element in it is very little. Um, you know, so they're very difficult books to market anyway. But I, I, I've really been surprised, and I'm just wondering how much of it is the uh, the ethnic angle, you know. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, what was I going to ask? Oh, yeah, and how was it to write a character who is Japanese for you? Surprisingly intense. Yeah. <laughs> because, right, like as writers, that's our job is to get in the head of a character who's yeah. not us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, most of our characters, even if it's the same gender or roughly the same age, they're not us. We have to go into the head of another person all the time. Yeah. And so I was surprised at how different it was. Once I started writing this character, all of these sort of repressed emotions <laughs> started coming up. And I realized how angry I was at, you know, the way I'd been treated, you know, family members had been treated. Um, other people I know, uh, Asians had been treated. And, you know, that's what this character had been carrying around with her. And here she was in an internment camp and was being subjected to, you know, this very mysterious illness, let's just say. It's really aggression. Anyway, uh, I was surprised that I felt it as deeply as I did. I think it did come out in the crafting of the character. People have told me, who are not Asian, that the character really resonates with them, that they just feel this kinship to her. So, yeah, it was it was eye-opening i just really didn't expect that yeah interesting interesting well and did you use um sensitivity did, have you did you have family who had been in the camps at some point my husband's family so i'm half japanese uh-huh my mom was in japan during the war she was a teenager and wow. she came over to america after the war she had married my father came to the united states and i remember as a kid hearing the stories of how you know, people would just attack her, seeing yeah. her on the street, oh. blaming her, you know, because she's Asian for the war yeah. and, you know, loss of family members and all that. And it really affected her very much. And she withdrew her whole life. She really didn't like to be around people. She didn't like to be around white people at all. Oh. Then my husband's family are also Japanese American and they had all been interned. Wow. So, you know, I heard the stories from them not as much as you might think because a lot of the people who went through the internment don't like to talk about it yeah for a lot of reasons so we also watched a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books and so i felt like i really knew that period well it's a very complex chapter in american history and yeah. the reasons for the internment are not as straightforward as what we learn in school right the little sound bites of history that we learn in school so um uh, we didn't use a sensitivity reader because I really felt like I knew it inside and out, right? Yeah, and I had lived yeah. through that. And yeah. so the other thing that people might find interesting if they're not minorities, everybody's some ethnicity, so they I'm sure everybody associates themselves with one group or another. But being half Asian, and I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts where there were very few minorities, right? It was like one Black family, one Jewish family, and we were the Asian family. So... <laughs> You kind of felt it, but you didn't feel it. You, especially, I guess, when you're half white and half something else. You, I just don't walk around thinking, 
that I'm a minority all the time, right? It's not until it hits you in the face that you realize, oh, maybe they're reacting to me because I'm not like them. And, and, and that's kind of the feeling I had in, in people's reaction to the book, for instance, and even my own reaction sometimes to the character. But when I was writing it, I was kind of surprised at some people's reactions to it uh, who were involved in the production process, and I'm not going to finger them, but I'll just say these are people I know, and I would consider them very progressive, and yet they would say crazy things to me like, you know, well, obviously the people in the camps would be very upset because their religion wasn't being respected. And I said, hell no, Uh, Japanese, you know, converted to Western religions. They wanted to assimilate. They didn't like cling to Buddhism and Shintoism. You know, that's wrong. They thought they wore kimonos. They thought they had Asian names. I'm like, no, no, no. That was kind of one of the really sad things about the internment, especially that second generation. And that's what I am, second generation. totally assimilated right we're as american as the next person you're american citizens yet they put them in the camps yeah yeah and there was seems like a really timely project yeah and there was so much um so much horrible stuff afterwards too where they i mean they seized property and so people who weren't able to go back to their lives and you know really yes really sad lost a lot of money, property, friends, lost their lives, you know, seeing the adult family members, especially who went through it and how it really it left a mark on them personally, you know, how they relate to society and all that kind of stuff. It was an interesting writing experience too, right? Because, you know, you don't want to be didactic. You don't want to just have this preachy story that's telling you a lesson, right? Nobody wants to read that. So it was the challenge of trying to come up with a really engaging story that still let the lesson kind of seep through. And I do think it's successful. I mean, a lot of the reader response that I've gotten so far is that people like the lesson uh, kind of hits them afterwards, right? They love the story, they tear through the story, and then they realize the lesson. Because that's kind of what the book was about. It, it, you know, when you hear the fervor is a disease, people say, oh, it's a COVID story. Well, I actually started working on it before COVID. What it was really about was looking at this divisiveness that had gripped the country, right, during 2019 and a few years before that what we were in the midst of but then COVID happened and then other things happened and so as i'm rewriting i just tried to pick up those threads too so the book i think when you read it feels like something that we're all we've all just gone through together mm-hmm. even though it's talking about something that happened you know in 1944. i wonder um too if the timing of it you know if people just don't want to read about anything that sounds like it could be a COVID story. You know, and that very well may be it too. I know other COVID books, you know, books about uh, pandemics and things have struggled a little bit. Only a few, I think, have really managed to, to break out. Yeah, yeah. Well, and are you, little, you're yeah. writing um, a, a follow-up to Red Widow, I'm imagining? 
Yes. So I was lucky enough to get a contract for the second book and we just sort of finalized the manuscript. It should be coming out next year and, and my books generally come in the spring. So here's hoping it's called Red London. So kind of the same thing. I think every espionage writer in the world was looking at what was coming with Russia and it's, you know, saber rattling. And then the attack happened and everything moved much more swiftly than anyone expected. And every spy novelist I know has had to rewrite their book. Ah! <laughs> I had to rewrite it twice, but wow. I came up with a device that kind of jumped me ahead in time. So I think it's bulletproof unless something really crazy happens. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's. <laughs> I think that I think I can guarantee you that something crazy is going to happen, but hopefully it will not affect your book. <laughs> you know, it's very scary because I, as the publisher kept asking for changes, I said, "Okay, I'll do it," but you gotta realize because you know I I worked in war rooms and you can't hold like the president's daily brief, because something might change, you know what I mean? Like at a certain point, you just got to bite the bullet and say, this is the version and we're going forward. Of course, with the president's daily brief, you're just talking about a window of a few hours. But, you know, you guys know, publishing a book is a long process. So even though we just signed off on the manuscript, the finished version, you know, it might come out in March, that, that's still months and months away. And like you said, a lot could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, we were talking a little bit about characters and all the characters you create besides your your um, protagonist mm -hmm. and how they support the story. Did you have a cast of thousands for the fervor or did you have did you keep it small? And how, what was that like? I mean, you want to give the feeling you're in a internment camp I guess you need to have also people get sick and die so you can't yeah. just have them be well, there's a lot of characters who were just named and very fleeting this book is a little different from my from the other ones in that it, there's four point point of view characters and uh, unlike the previous two historical horror novels the the hunger and the deep um this is very uh, much more detached from actual history. There are some actual historical events like the opening of the book. There's an explosion caused by a fire balloon, a Fugo, and that's based on an actual real event. But this, otherwise the story itself is a bit more fictional. Mm -hmm. So the characters are more fictional. There's only a couple characters in there who are real people. And I kind of evolved that way because I was getting the sense that more readers were uncomfortable with a real person having their lives being altered and that sort of thing even though that's what historical fiction is uh -huh. um to a certain degree i know we don't like to think about that but all historical fiction is fiction um <laughs> but but i i kind of evolved the story so that there's more fictional characters and it just ends up being a little bit more comfortable for everyone so in this book in particular there were certain things that I needed the, the point of view characters to be able to do. And because one of them was trapped in a camp and it like, you know, it's like a prison and it really restricts her ability to know certain things that are happening on the outside yeah. and she has to know I needed these other characters to be mobile and that sort of thing. So that really was a, 
you know, uh, a, a remedy, a response to the demands of storytelling. So yeah, there's Archie, who's based on a real character. He's the pastor whose wife is killed by the fire balloon in the opening scene. And he kind of stands in, he's meant to represent sort of complicit people, right? People who have a feeling that what they're doing is probably wrong. In this case, you know, discriminating against people that they know are innocent, but they go along with it because it's easy. It, it means they're not going to get in trouble. I should probably explain at this point, one of the things I did for a long time when I was an intelligence analyst is I followed certain kinds of operate of, of um, war, uh, warfare, basically, civil unrest. So in the 90s, I did a lot of what we call genocides and mass atrocities. Oh, so pleasant. Um, so, you know, like Bosnia and Rwanda and Sierra Leone and all those places. And, and so I studied those kinds of things, kind of like what we're seeing in our own country right now, the mm. divisiveness and how groups organize to demonize another. And yeah, oh. so yeah, that's a big part of the story too. So, so Archie is kind of meant to stand in for that, that, that group of people who we see in a lot of these types of conflicts. And then there's a reporter, Fran Gerswald, who is, um, tracking the story, trying to tell the story, even though the army's trying to shut down, which is what happened in real life. The army did try to keep the press from reporting on the instances of the fire balloons because they didn't want the public to panic. And then later they were accused, you know, if you had let them report on it, maybe there would have been, you know, that deaths on Gearheart Mountain wouldn't have happened, that sort of thing. So anyway, she's, you know, very important because she's finding the clues that otherwise there was just no way to bring that information into the story. And then, you know, there's Mako who's, you know, in the, the camp, she's there being affected by the disease. She's the one who's able to, um, uh, who's being persecuted, right, by the outside forces and is, is the pivotal character. And then we have her daughter who um, is sort of that really sympathetic, completely innocent voice that, um, you know, can kind of ground the reader again when they're getting a little lost in the labyrinth of all the crazy things and the kind of bad things that are happening. It's kind of nice to have a character who's just completely innocent and and you can kind of go to for a palate cleanse. And did you cycle through their points of view by like chapter or are they each representing different points of view within single units? Every chapter, I try to keep... Um, to one point of view in a chapter gotcha. yeah because otherwise i think readers can get really confused yeah that was something i learned from doing the taker books which are stupidly complex only because i didn't know what i was doing at the time because there's first and there's third person there's president there's past tense there's all kinds of crazy things going on it's really easy to confuse readers no wonder it took you 10 years yeah yeah and I still didn't get it right, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is the, are these all in the third person, like a close third or something like that? Yep. Or, yeah. Yeah. Fairly close. Yeah. Cool. That well, sounds amazing. I look forward to reading it. Yeah. Well, I it's been you. yeah, it's been so awesome talking to you, and it's so exciting yes. to see that you've got all these books coming out, and you know. Thank and you. when can we um, see Red Widow on the screen? 
That's a great question. (laughs) Apparently, this is not the best time in the world to be trying to do a TV series. First, they optioned, the studio optioned the the book, but then they weren't in any rush for like a year because, you know, all the production had shut down because of COVID. This all happened just just as COVID was kicking off. And so, um, and then once the studio started filming again, they had that last year's shows that they had to okay. cycle through. So they kind of dragged their feet for a long time. And then unfortunately there was a big personnel change at Fox. And so now there's a new team and uh, they want something different. So we're still working on um, getting the pilot to where they, where they want to see it. But it's making progress, which is unusual. I mean, many books are optioned, picked up, and nothing ever comes of them, or it takes decades before they see the light of day. So I was very surprised. They're very committed, yeah, to the book. Um, They really want to have a a female, they're looking for more female led dramas, you know. Oh, so good. Well, yeah, we look forward to seeing that and and more books from you. And, um, and it was so great to just have this chance to hang out and and catch up a little bit. Thank you so much for listening to me just babble on about Oh, thanks for being here. It's been a real pleasure, Alma. Alma Katsu, folks. Thank you for for, for coming to chat with us because we know your schedule is so busy and um, and hopefully we'll see you at the Festival of the Book again really soon. Oh, I hope so too. Thank you so much. All right, see ya. Well, it was great to catch up with um, with Alma again. I had heard a little bit about you know developing her book into a, to a show, um, but it was interesting to hear a little bit about where she is with that and yeah i mean the whole thing how she came to write to writing and then um i really loved learning more about both of these new books yeah red widow i mean that sounds fascinating and gosh the the very latest one what a project yeah yeah i do you know Mm -hmm. yeah and they talk um she was on a panel with another Japanese writer who had, was writing about post-internment camp. And they were just talking a lot about how it meant a lot to them, you know, to focus again on this time in history. And, and, cause, because it hasn't really been given enough attention. You know, yeah, as a country, yeah. we've sort of swept it under the rug and said, oh, we would never you know, detain people or <laughs> this is why we need to read them again. Like, yes. Okay. How did that happen? When yeah. Nobody believed it could. And um, yeah. where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To, to remind ourselves of how we got to where we did yeah. in some of the darker moments of our nation's history. Yes. Yes. Well, as always, it's great to catch up with you too. Likewise. And, uh, We'll be back together in June. I guess it'll be even hotter and more humid and we'll have another guest. Yes. Keep us keep us going. <laughs> well, thank you, Meredith. Thanks, and Kristen. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care. Bye.